Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Pull out the piano, dust those keys and play that thing, that memory, that old-time rag. Play it now amongst the half-full glasses where the long skirts wave and the shirt sleeves rest on the bar. In the moon, underwater. Robin, Robin, welcome in, welcome in, come in, come in, come in, mate. Grab a thank seat. Thank you, thank you, thanks. Oh, welcome to the Moon Underwater. I, John Robbins, am the landlord of this hallowed pub, and with me as ever is my trusty steed, the lovely, the lovely Robin Allender, here to uh, pass muster on all events that happen. And pass mustard as well, in case you, you need that as a condiment. Yeah, because it's. I, put it, I don't know why I put it so far at that end of the bar. It's a pain. I should just. I should have it front and centre, like all decent pubs have their mustard on a plinth. Mm. Uh, but what do you think of the way the moon underwater has displayed itself this evening, Robin? Well, yeah, beautifully transparent. It is absolutely remarkably transparent. You'd have thought that many layers of sort of clear glass would end up becoming opaque. No, no. I think it's it's nice to be able to see outside, but be inside. I mean, it's not just windows. It's kind of transparent. Transparent wood, transparent fixtures. And not a smear in sight. No, no. No, no it's extraordinary. Robert, have, can, you, can you hear what's going on outside? I can, yeah. The sort of quite familiar thwack of willow on willow. Oh, yes, it really is. What a, what a beautiful sound, actually. Yeah, yeah, but even though the sound of willow on willow is beautiful, the sight of it, those willow trees going at each other, hammer and tongs, is, is brutal stuff. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And the sound of leather on leather is a very different sound. I don't, not, a bit unappetising, that. Yeah, well, what happens is the leather makers in the, um, in the village, they get all het up by the willow trees kicking seven bells out of each other. So they tool up with their tack, their uh, leather... What are the, some of the key leather items, Robin? Like a horse's saddle? <laughs> Wallets? Well, they're saddlers by trade. Wallets. Yeah, the sound of wallets thwacking into each other at distance. And they had to bring in a rule to stop 
uh, people filling the wallets with too many coins because they could be pretty nasty at short range. Like people used to cheat at conkers by putting nails in and things like that. Yeah. Anyway, it's pleasant sound, even if the spectacle itself is rather gruesome. Yeah. Willow on willow and leather on leather. But a silence has fallen, and I think it must be time for tea. Uh, so the, the willow trees have headed back to the edge of the uh, river, and the, the saddlers have uh, shaken hands and agreed to call it a, a draw. Fourteen all. Fourteen all it is. And striding between the departing saddlers and willows is this week's guest, who I think is about to give his distinctive knock on the moon underwater door. And in comes the right venerable. The right, Sir Honourable, Sir Captain, Sir Lord, A. Zaltzman, Andy Zaltzman, welcome to the Moon Underwater. Oh, thanks! Thanks for in- inviting me in. It's a, it's a great honour to be uh, to be invited into the world's most prestigious and exclusive pub. I have to say, Andy, the honour is all ours because, as a man familiar to the sound of leather on willow, and I don't mean a saddler throwing a wallet <laughs> at a tree. <laughs> I mean, the traditional sound of leather on willow, but also the sound of laughter ringing in the aisles. Also, whatever the sound that recording a podcast makes is, I guess it's sort of the sound of the podcast in your own headphones. There's a lot of sounds in your world. Yep. But uh, it's a delight to have you here because you, I'm going to put this on record as you are the man in the world of whom I'm most jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, there's not many people who've ever said that, John. Honestly, if I was on Desert Island Careers, <laughs> sort of a slightly copyright problematic uh, radio show, and they say, you're on a desert island, what job do you want to have there? Mine would probably be Test Match Special Scorer. Or Summarizer. I don't really have the brain or the neatness of hand to, uh, <laughs> to, to compile the records as diligently as you do. But... Um, for those of you who don't, for the, if it's not quite clear from what I'm saying, uh, what does he do, Andy? You are a comedian, satirist, news quiz host, and also probably the most hallowed position in world sport. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. The scorer for TMS. It's probably the most hallowed position in the entire universe, I would think. With all, with all due respect to uh, Zeus, king of Olympus. Yeah, I, I can't think of any job anyone would, would rather have than writing little... Dots on a bit of paper uh, whilst cricket's going on in the background. Well, Zeus didn't have to sort of deal with many stats. He had what's the height of Mount Olympus. He had his fun pub fact that actually there's a there's a mountain under the sea that's higher than Mount Olympus. And he had quite a lot of court cases going on generally. So um, uh, he was busy, busy man. Just to um, put a kind of uh, figure on it, I was trying to remember how many TMS scorers I had known in my lifetime. I think it might just be three. Is that correct? There have been a few more than three, but not many that have done it for a long time. So Bill Frindle did it from, I think, the early 70s, maybe even before that, uh, until uh, he died, I think, in 2009. Oh, dear old Bill. So he would. Bill was the sound of the sort of the score of my youth and adulthood, actually. Yes. So, But it was rather different in his day. He, he largely preceded the era of all the stats being on the internet. So he had to carry a sort of trolley full of books around with him around the world to look stuff up, uh, whereas I just need a laptop and um, 
so it was, it was a rather different job in those. So then Andrew Sampson did most of the time, sort of after Bill Frindle uh, died in in yeah in two thousand and nine, and then I started doing one days in twenty sixteen and test matches in in twenty twenty. And uh, yeah, if you are into cricket and statistics, and I'm very much into both of those things ideally together uh i mean it is a genuine dream job as a child i did used to listen to the radio and think oh i'd love to do what bill frindle's doing uh i was quite a weird child and that's quite a weird dream (laughs) but nonetheless it was a childhood dream to to uh to do it so yeah it's uh it's great fun and um yeah lovely way to spend a lot of time and i guess it's a bit like you know my dream is always to be watson not sherlock holmes because I want to witness everything. I want to be a part of it, but I don't necessarily want much of the focus to be on me. Do you feel right. you're sort of Watson <laughs> to Agassiz Holmes, Rainford Brent's Holmes? <laughs> I've not thought of it in those terms. I don't know. Was was Watson into? Did he sit there crunching the numbers? Uh, oh, Sherlock, this is the you're on a you know seventy three percent crime solving rate in, in the last two and a half. Well, he, seasons. he did write it all down. He he was the biographer, and I guess in many ways you're the biographer of cricket's stats. Yes, of all the, the numbers that would otherwise just disappear off into space, <laughs> unstatted. So tell us about Andy. I mean, stats aside, cricket has to be, and we may have discussed this with Ellie Oldroyd when she was on, but in terms of drinking hours, a day of cricket really is pretty perfect for... Let's not make no bones about it, the post-lash. But also gives you a little bit of extra time in the morning. Usually kickoffs about sort of 10 or 11. Yeah, I mean, it depends how you like to structure your drinking day and also how much of the cricket you wish to remember. Also, you know, on the playing side of things, uh, in village cricket, you know, the hours are pretty much designed, certainly when I used to play a lot of village cricket back in the 90s, around making sure that the game started after the pub had opened uh, in the days when they had slightly more restricted opening hours. So you could have a drink before the game and then the game would end after the pub had sort of opened for the evening because you know, they'd quite often be closed in the afternoon back then. So it was very much an integral part. The pub and drinking was a, it was a huge part. of the, and, and whether the game, you know, village cricket would have continued existing without the incentive of a visit to the pub. I don't know. I think some, for, for some people it would, for some people it, it wouldn't. But it was definitely, it was a, it was a fundamental part of the texture of, of village cricket. And certainly, you know, now watching, you know, you go to watch cricket, certainly in in, uh, in this country. Drinking is, well, I mean, it's, it, I, yeah, it, it, I guess it depends how you like to watch your cricket. Generally, when I used to go to cricket in the days before I worked on it, I would not drink until the final session of the day if at all because i like to see all the cricket and uh not not get drunk but there obviously there are people who don't go along with that strategy many like to be hu- pretty much hung over by lunchtime i think <laughs> and and then work through it for and uh be on to the third hangover of the day uh, by the time they go off for bad light but it's uh it, it's always yeah it's, there's always been strong strong links between the sports and uh, the alcohol, I think. Well, have you ever been, I'm not sure if you would have done, to a, a pub called The Hit and Miss in Penn in Buckinghamshire? I have not, no. So they have a cricket team, which they've had since, I think, uh, the early 1900s. 
And I'm not sure whether the team is named after the pub. Well, I think the pub is named after the team because it, it's, a, it's just adjacent to a village cricket pitch. And uh, they play on Sundays in the summer. And it's that perfect mix. I mean, it's the most... You couldn't pick a more sort of rural scene than the pub looking out onto the cricket pitch <laughs> with the uh, the players associated with the pub and over 110 years of history of the two doing battle with each other in, in a beautiful way. Rob, you were brought up very close to the county ground in Bristol, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I've only, I mean, I'm, I'm full confession is that I'm not, I don't really follow cricket. Sorry. <laughs> you should be apologising to yourself, not me. Yeah, this is your, yourself you're letting down here. You are shunning the greatest invention in the history yeah, of the universe for no discernible reason, despite having grown up in Bristol, you know, very much a hotbed of cricket. I have been to the county ground. I went to a 2020 game there, which was great fun. And yeah, but you know, the Annex and the Sportsman, I mean, I know them very well. The pub's right by the county ground. Uh, I mean, Andy, you say the greatest invention in the history of the universe. I, whilst I do agree with that, I think it is a sort of equal tie between cricket and the iPod Classic. I'd still, I'd back cricket over the iPod Classic. <laughs> really? Yeah. In this and any hypothetical parallel <laughs> universe. Was the was um when when you were growing up how closely was cricket and pubs tied together for you was did you get into pubs because of cricket or vice versa? I don't really remember going to the pub much as a as a child. You know, occasionally, well, you know, my parents would take us and go to have lunch somewhere, but not very rarely. Even though for a couple of years when I was very young, we lived in a little village, but then after that, pubs weren't really a huge thing until I started playing cricket when I was about 18 I left school and and joined a local village team the mighty Penshurst Park and um I remember my, probably my most memorable single pub moment the, the, the day I played my first game for Penshurst and we went to the pub afterwards and I was you know uh, I think it's fair to say the youth policy by a margin of about 25 years and uh, very very welcoming uh, but one of the uh, the the old stages said would you like a drink? And I said, yes, please. He said, what do you have? And I said, can I have a pint of lager? And he just turned to me and said, you're having bitter. Bought <laughs> 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 me a, a pint of a local ale. And um, that was um, you know, a staging post, I guess, and uh, taught me to see the light on what to order in pubs. But definitely informed me that, I don't know, the modern affectation of lager drinking was not to be tolerated. So, Andy, is your dream pub going to have sort of cricketing elements specific sort of cricketing connections that you want to imbibe it with yes uh I'd, there'd be a, a lot of sports memorabilia uh, on the walls which I, I believe every pub should have do you do, do you do gigs at the original oak john in leeds yeah i have done yeah there was some cracking cricket memorabilia on the walls there um i haven't been there for a while that's it's very near headingly there would be quite a lot of sports memorabilia, not exclusively cricket, but but mostly cricket. Also, I know you know the, the subject, the thorny issue of TV screens in pubs. I would definitely have a TV screen, but it would only be playing old Test matches from the nineteen eighties, uh, <laughs> oh, which I think nice. would have a, a calming effect on the clientele. You wouldn't get people getting overexcited, but I believe it elevates the human soul to a, a level of spiritual calmness that uh, that nothing else can. I think. A lot of the issues around screens in pubs are really to do not with screens, but with what screens play and with what impact what the screens are playing has on the sorts of people 
and the atmosphere in the in the pub. So if you said I can have screens, but they're not going to play music videos or terrestrial TV or football, then actually the idea of snooker being on in a pub or cricket is quite relaxing because it doesn't invade. Or actually golf is quite nice because apart from the majors, no one really watches golf. Yeah. I think that's good because the problem with football on the on in the pub because is it so fast paced that your eyes keep getting drawn to it? But you're right. If if it's snooker and maybe, you know maybe to a lesser extent cricket. Well, cricket is a game of in which contemplation and conversation is built in to the ball by ball structure. So I think it's ideal pub screen fodder. One of the weirdest things I've seen on a pub screen, I can't remember where it was, but it it just had a twenty four hour news channel on on a massive screen. It was a classic case of having something and therefore using it, rather than thinking, would anyone in their right mind want to come to the pub to watch the yeah. news? <laughs> and, and to which the answer is obviously no. No, you want to go to the pub to avoid... It's one of the places you go to avoid reality, is it not? Yeah. yeah. So you don't want you don't want the latest from the financial markets every you know, quarter past the hour. You don't want the weather forecast. I hate the radio on in a pub, when it's particularly a commercial radio when there's adverts. It's just yes. when you like start hearing, you know, adverts for double glazing or something in a pub. It's like, what is this for? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we've got a pub full of sports memorabilia. We've got uh, sort of eighties, maybe seventies test matches on on the TV, or just eighties. It doesn't really matter when it's from, but ideally not from now. It's it's the I think it has to be past test cricket just tinkling along in the background. Yeah. So it's not too much of a distraction. And also, you know, for people who hate cricket, then they should be punished by having cricket forced on them yes. <laughs> at all times. Also, it's quite nice to watch famous moments in real time because so often, like, it, it's quite hard to find, you know, that famous um, Ashes game where Australia were bowled out for, was it 61? Quite recent one. The Stuart Broad one. Really. Yes, the Stuart Broad yeah. one. It's quite hard to find every ball of that, even though it's so short. And I remember listening to TMS. It was, I was in Edinburgh at the time in my flat for the festival. And I think they were four down. And I was like, this is fantastic. I'm just going to pop out to get my um, like breakfast stuff. And I got back and they were seven down. <laughs> it's like, oh, I've missed. <laughs> I would literally, if I just stuck around for the half hour, I'd have heard the whole thing. Yeah. But I think that would be superb to be able to watch, like, you know, the Headingley test in 81. Yeah. Actually watch it in real time. I think it would. you would have a permanently packed pub of, I mean, admittedly, people like me who would just go to a pub to watch ancient cricket. <laughs> so. Why has no one done this? It's like football <laughs> games as well, like showing classic World Cup games or something. Yeah, I wouldn't mind classic football. Do you have access to... Or does anyone have access to, say, the full footage of the 1981 Headingley test? I don't know if that exists, because I think it probably does somewhere in the BBC archives. But I, mean, I don't know. I mean, a lot of the stuff that was on physical tape, I think they used to reuse the tapes and only keep certain bits. But I, I really don't know. It's not like when uh, when they discover the sort of lost Morecambe and Wise episode. <laughs> They're not likely to uncover an Ian Botham innings that no one remembered at all every ball of chris taveray's supporting role at old trafford in the same <laughs> series when he batted for hours and hours and hours is there stuff that's lost because it was on the radio 
like no one's ever seen it because it's like a, a great sporting event and, and everyone wants to know what it actually looked like. Well, I guess from the days before regular television, there was a lot that was only on the, on the radio. And radio commentary, I think, began in the 1920s. And I think the, the first... I can't remember what the first sporting broadcast was on the BBC, but there was they certainly did early cup finals where they I think they printed off a a, a map of the pitch in the Radio Times with uh, yeah. numbered areas, which is all back to square one. Is that the, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I guess there'd be quite a lot of sport which was only radio, but then most of that radio stuff's probably been lost as well. I just wonder if there's something like like Maradona's handball or something that's only available as audio, so no one could like that would be <laughs> quite interesting. Yeah, but yeah, there was some. I did some alternative commentary on Maradona's handball on, on my podcast, The Bugle, uh, many years ago. That was uh, <laughs> quite sweary. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, there could be a market for. You know, video recreations of great moments of sporting history for the ones that are not not available. Surely, with modern technology, you could be able to create you know, the eighteen eighty four FA Cup final. Or yeah. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm going to be asking you a few a few more questions about this pub as we go through, but let's start kitting it out. Your first two draft options, please, Andy. Well, in honour of that that first time I was forced to drink real ale, I would have a. I think it was Harvey's. Oh, uh, I'd I'd have that on on draft for nostalgic purposes. It's not a bad pint to be forced to drink as your first pint of bitter. Harvey Sussex best. Yes, popular choice in Moon Underwater as well. And I'd, I'd go slightly off beam for the second choice, and have as my second draft option. A red Spanish vermouth on on draft, if that's allowed, Whoa. which you do get in certain bars in in Spain. But that that has become my tipple of choice in recent years. Uh, in fact, drinking some right now. Oh, what? so talk me through that because if it exists on draft anywhere in the world, you're allowed it. Good. So is that just neat vermouth? Yes. 
in Spain, they they drink it with sort of ice and some citrus, uh, and it's a, a great drink. And you know, it's not too uh, not too aggressively strong. It's very varied. There's uh, lots of you know, it's, it's I think sort of fortified wine with botanicals. So there's a huge range of different different flavors, and the Italian ones and the French ones and the Spanish ones are all a bit different to each other. And there's you know, craft vermouths all over the place. So um, I think I'd have I'd have just a nice basic. Red vermouth as my second draft option. Wow. Is it kind of sangria adjacent? The only time I had sangria was in Torquay. <laughs> <laughs> I took a gap year between school and university, and the furthest I got away from home was to watch Torquay versus Gillingham <laughs> in the last game of the uh, 92-93 uh, Football League season. <laughs> and uh, I remember drinking sangria in a, in a bar before before the game so uh, I'm not much up on the latest evolution in in craft sangria did you find yourself in your gap year when you went to Torquay no, I think I lost myself uh, <laughs> it was my my gap year was uh, unimpressive and uh, unadventurous but uh, yeah learning experience I guess so is it a slightly just to place it in my mind is it a slightly bitter tasting Sort of aperitif, a bit like a Negroni style. Well, there's vermouth in a Negroni, yeah, certainly. But I tend to just drink it on its own. Just to get this straight, you're heading out post match for a curry with tuffers, aggers, <laughs> yeah, and you're you're going to the pub for one before you before your table's ready. I, I know aggers is a bit of a white wine guy. What's tuffers making of your vermouth? Your sort of pre curry vermouth. Oh, I'm not. I'm not sure. Really, he's a very tolerant man. I think he'd be he'd be be open to probably trying it. I've I've seen it. He he has actually. He has tried it, um, and seemed to seem to get on with it quite well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, I'd uh, I'd uh, I'd definitely have a, a, a pre curry vermouth. I'm not sure it would go with curry, mm. but uh, yeah, it's a very it's a very it's, it's a drink for any any time of uh, life and day. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's move on to your bottles and cans. What are we accompanying Harvey's and the vermouth with? My first bottle is something that I um, found during lockdown when, as I'm sure many people did, there was um, there was not a lot to do, <laughs> obviously, and uh, my wife and I sort of ordered some some drinks that we'd not tried before online, and there was one that was uh, a Peruvian pisco and grape juice mix. Ooh, nice! That was described as a bit like a the French drink Pinot de Charente, so sort of dessert wine with a sort of hint of brandy. Uh, taste. I don't know. Quite. I'm, I'm no expert on these things, but it's called Bar Sol Perfecto Amor, golden colour, and uh, yeah, like a slightly stronger dessert wine. Slips down an absolute treat. So is, is this is this different from a pisco sour? Then? Yes, which uses a, a, a cocktail made with pisco, which is a spirit, but this is more of a sort of liqueury strength, I guess. Nice. Oh, this looks like the problem I was once desperate to solve because. It's sort of it's seventeen percent, so it's not spirit strength, but it says it's got enticing notes of salted caramel and honey. Right. Does it taste like what you sort of thought whiskey would taste like when you were a kid? <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it, actually. 
Yes, my dad. My dad used to drink whiskey, and yes, yeah, so I, I was I was familiar with the smell of whiskey long before I was familiar with the taste. And my introduction to whiskey was a poor one, in a cl- classic uh, teenage drinking at a friend's party that put me off whiskey for many years. But um, yeah, I'd say that's quite a maybe quite a good description of it. So it's quite sweet. I do like sweets drinks. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's got a. Its flavour profile is raisins, apricot, honey, dried fruit, and it's sort of rich, sweet, and full-bodied. And it's a really delightful glass as well. I've never, even, I've never heard of it. Where did you hear of it? I can't remember really. I just um, <laughs> came across. I think searching a, a, <laughs> a website. I love the idea that in lockdown you just think, okay, let's get six drinks we've never had and just go through them. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's basically what we did. There was a very good. Japanese or Korean plum liqueur that had the plums still in the bottom of this this kind of dark green bottle with a wide opening at the top so you could get the plums out when you drank. Um, uh, and that was an excellent dessert, these kind of booze-infused plums. God knows how old they were, but they tasted uh, tasted delicious. But yeah, we did try a, a few things out. But yeah, the, the Bar Sol Perfecto Amor was, uh, was a highlight. And what would your second bottle be? My uh, my second bottle would be another Spanish effort. It would be a bottle of Pedro Jimenez sherry, which is uh, dark and sweet and gloopy. Uh, and quite versatile. You can just tip it on ice cream. makes a lovely dessert. You can drink it on its own. So, that yeah, that would be my, uh, my, my second one. I once made the mistake of buying some Pedro Jimenez sherry for a recipe that required something like a tablespoonful. Right. And and I, I actually think by the time I came to... By the time you came to? Yeah. <laughs> by, by the time I required that tablespoon, I'm afraid there was no more left in the locker. <laughs> really does go down a treat. Do you have that chilled? Generally not, actually. But if, I've, you know, if we've remembered to put, put it in the fridge then yes, or if we can be asked to get an ice cube out of the freezer, then maybe. But it's fine. I don't, I don't really know the serving suggest because it's, it's not like a, you know, a, a cereal box. You buy your shreddies, it will have a, a picture of shreddies with milk and you know, serving suggestion written underneath, in case you weren't sure what it was. But you don't, you don't get that with, you know, it might say on the, on, on the back, and you know, say best served with um, you know, a cup of tea or a, or a Cheese biscuit, yeah. but they don't, they aren't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you're supposed to to chill that particular uh, particular I mean, one. They never had that on the back of cigarette packets either, did they? That would have been oh, best served, served with a serving suggestion, <laughs> just a, a man with a or a woman with a cigarette in their mouth. You know, best consumed under a lamplight in a Jack Vetriano painting. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, Andy, your choices so far seem to tell a story of very patriotic. Englishman who who then moves to sort of uh, the Algarve, <laughs> yeah, perhaps to es- escape a tax investigation. <laughs> yeah, Torquay opened your eyes to, uh, to Spain. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I've not, not generally thought of my drinking habits as being particularly <laughs> patriotic. So, would this pub be next to a cricket ground or in the vicinity of a cricket ground? And if so. Of all the cricket grounds in the world, which would you most like to be in walking distance of your pub? Oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, yes, it was, should definitely be uh, in walking distance of a cricket ground. In terms of a ground to play at, I'd pro- probably pick my old village ground of, uh, of Penshurst. 
which is uh, a beautiful ground in the middle of some sheep fields with um, a great big country house at one end. In terms of you know the bigger cricket grounds where where top level cricket is played, oh, I don't I, I don't know where I put the pub. I really like the ground in Dhaka in Bangladesh, but there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of demand for pubs there, so that might be uh, a tricky one from a commercial point of view. But uh, I like going to the Oval, but there's there's a lot of pubs around the Oval. I'm not sure there's a need for any more pubs. I like the idea of this pub being in uh, next to Dhaka. Yeah, because I mean. I think the vermouth would go down well in the climate. Possible legal complications, I think, with selling alcohol there. But I, I, ah, yeah. But but I think the point—it doesn't really matter what cricket ground it is. But ideally, you sh- the the play should be visible out of at least one set of windows. Yes, it would be negligent not to not to have that option. I think. And really, I mean, they play cricket in the communal field that I live near, and you can get interested by any standard of cricket. Yes, you can just sit and watch. This is, I mean, this is absolute village cricket that goes on near me. And as long as you sort of pick a team, or a guy you like the look of, or a guy you think looks a bit mean or a bit grumpy, <laughs> as long as you've got some sort of skin in the game, it can be just as thrilling. Whether it's sort of they're quite overweight and um, their run-ups are somewhat shorter than they were in their prime, or whether it's the the elite of the elite. Yeah. Well, we're just coming up to the quiz, Andy. And I know that you you've certainly taken part in a few cricket quizzes. You've even set a few, haven't you, during lockdown? Well, on on Test Match Special, we had a the TMS quiz that ran the, through the Test matches in twenty twenty one. I did a bugle quiz for my for the bugle podcast during lockdown. So yeah, I have set a few quizzes. Um, and yeah, I mean that's obviously part of of, of pub life is the quiz. But you know, whether to be pub quizzes in my ideal pub. I'd like them to have answers that you couldn't necessarily get right or wrong, kind of philosophical questions about how you, know, how you should live your life. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, that's good, Because well, I think yeah. that's the problem with, you know, in, in this world where people demand facts and claim facts, I think a pub quiz where you can't get the answers right or wrong would be a very equalising, very egalitarian. Yeah. We have done that once where... What do you remember with George Egg, John? We, the, my pub quiz was was basically how do you kind of best poach an egg and things like that. Yeah, it was a sort of a technique-based quiz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you have a favourite statistic, Andy, or a particular table of results or someone's sort of career statistics that gives you great pleasure to look at? Mine is always Sidney Barnes's first-class stats. yes. Well, Sidney Barnes was uh, for 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 those of your listeners who are not familiar with the work of Sidney Barnes, uh, a cricketer in the early twentieth century, uh, had one of the, the best records in uh, still in international uh, cricket history. Um, he didn't play as much really internationally or uh, for in county cricket as he could have done because he essentially played for who would pay him more because he was very good and he thought he deserved to be remunerated accordingly, which has got a modern attitude, albeit not particularly uh, widespread in the early 20th century. So he played a lot for he played for Staffordshire, played a lot of club cricket, refused to play in some test matches. Uh, but uh, unbelievable uh, statistics. But, I mean, there are something incredible. So Stuart Broad, who now is, you know, he was a handy batsman, John, uh, in his early days. One of my favourite stats I've I've found was that in his first 25 tests in England, 
he had a better batting average than Wally Hammond or Ken Barrington, two of the greatest batsmen England have ever produced in their first 25 home tests. And yet then he, he became a very much a tail ender. But there's, you know, I have literally hundreds of spreadsheets that I've... Uh, <laughs> I've um, but what I say I've made for, for use on, on the radio, I largely make them for my own interest and then realise they are too obscure uh, to share on the radio. Um <laughs> But uh, someday I'll show them to you. Maybe maybe we could just ha- just have them in in the pub. Just have a screen with with a lot of yeah my my cricket stats spreadsheets. That's what you need on screens in yeah. pubs. Microsoft Excel. That's right. Or in the in in the toilets. You know, uh, yeah. Rather than like, having the day's newspapers up on the wall or whatever, or or adverts for uh, erectile dysfunction medicine or um, private number plates. Just have. Um, statistics on uh, 1920s test cricket on a, on a database. <laughs> well, I quite like those things you get at fancy members clubs where the there's the, the broadsheets are sort of attached to a wooden stick. Yes. Mm. And I could imagine sort of sheaves and tomes of your uh, very neatly recorded test match stats sort of monographed or lithographed <laughs> or maybe woodcuts. Yeah, car- carved. I can yeah, see a Carved into marble, maybe, would be the way to do it. Mm. Um, well, uh, great stat, that. And just before we head on to the quiz, I've asked you this before, but I think it's an interesting question. Did that stat exist before you had written it down? Did that exist as a... When does a stat... When is it born? Well, that is a <laughs> very interesting philosophical question. That would be a question for your pub quiz. Yeah, essentially, you discover stats. The numbers are there. I guess it comes down to that whole thing of, you know, if you ha- if you have a chunk of marble, sorry to keep banging on about marble, and you're an artist, you chisel away, are you discovering what's within it? Are you creating what's within it? Does a statistic work like that? Almost certainly not, but let's assume that it might. But if someone else went on the radio, say someone was doing commentary for another channel or something and said, oh, do you know that Stuart Broad's first 25 tests, he averaged better than Wally Hammond, etc.? Would Would people be going, mate? That's one of Zoltz's stats. <laughs> well, it depends how obscure it is, I guess. I mean, <laughs> that's quite obscure. I mean, it'd be quite, I guess, a bit surprising if anyone else had bothered looking that up. But I, I don't know. I mean, there's there are others. I'm not alone in this. There are other people who spend a lot of time snout down in obscure cricket stats, trying to truffle out something that no one else has come up with. So... Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. That's a, it's a very interesting philosophical question, whether a stat exists before someone's worked it out, when all the numbers are there's. I guess there's a lot of potential stats, mm. but it's almost you know, a question like, like like reincarnation. You know, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever be able to prove it one way or the other if the stat existed before it was discovered. Maybe it's a bit like sort of Schrodinger's um, batting record. It sort of exists and doesn't exist at the same time. <laughs> mm. Schrodinger's bat. Schrodinger's bat, very good. Well, Robin, I'm going to hand over to you for the Moon Underwater pub quiz. Okay, everybody, pens out, eyes down. It's time for the quiz. for Zimbabwe, but he was born in South Africa. I know Alaska is bigger, that wasn't the question. Put your phone away. Right, Michael Jackson's Funky Monkey have been deducted five points. 
Thanks, John. Uh, yes, so the Moon Underwater pub quiz this week, it's a quiz about unusual names for everyday things. For instance, the prongs of a fork are called tines. So if you ever find yourself eating yogurt with a fork, you can sing, Yog on the tines is all mine, which, <laughs> which I have done. Um, so, yes, three questions. It's multiple choice this time, and we'll do the answers in part two. So question one. What is the name for the plastic bit at the end of your shoelace? Is it A, planchette, B, druplet, or C, aglet? Question two. What is the name for the metal bit which attaches a rubber to the end of a pencil? <laughs> is it A, graticule, B, ferrule, or C, spicule? And three. What is the technical name for a hashtag... Is it A, Obelus, B, Octothorpe, or C, Pillcrow? <laughs> so those are your three questions. Multiple choice. That's a really great quiz. <laughs> Thanks. Those are tricky. Mm. There's something really comforting about knowing there is a technical name for absolutely everything. You'd hope so, yeah. And someone somewhere knows it because someone somewhere designs the spectacles and the ferules and all those sorts of things. But we will leave you on those multiple choice tenter hooks as we take a break, and we'll be back very shortly to continue kitting out Andy Zaltzman's Dream Pub. But just a reminder that in the second half, Andy's pub companion choice will be for patrons only. So if you want to support the podcast, you can head to moonunderpod.com and click through to subscribe on Patreon, where you also get access to Behind the Cellar Door, and live tickets as and when they become available. Behind the Cellar Door is our bonus podcast, I should say, where Robert and I travel within the pub, within the pub, within the mind. Uh, But until part two, bye-bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 